This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, has capitalism failed? We're asking today's big question to Dr. Ken Barnes. Ken is a businessman, scholar and theologian. He holds the Mockler Phillips Chair in Workplace Theology and Business Ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in the United States. He's worked as a senior business executive and is the author of Redeeming Capitalism, a book seeking to reclaim the moral roots of capitalism. And he joins me now. Ken, welcome to Bigger Questions. Well, it's good to be back. It's great to be back. It's great to have you on the show. Now, you're the Mockler Phillips Chair in Workplace Theology and Business Ethics. That's a long title, but, but what does it mean? Well, um, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, as you may know, is uh, one of the uh, more well-established and, and larger uh, evangelical seminaries in America. Yep. And two benefactors who were very important to this space, a fellow by the name of Coleman Mockler, yep. who was the chairman and CEO of the Gillette Corporation, right. and Tom Phillips, who recently passed away, who was the chairman and chief executive of uh, another large corporation in the Boston area. Uh, both were interested in business ethics, and, yeah. they, and they believed that Ethics had to be rooted in something yeah. uh, more tangible than just good feelings. Okay. So uh, both being men of the faith, they endowed my chair, and Gordon Conwell invited me to take that chair. And I'm an alumnus of Gordon Conwell. I was a student there some 30 years ago. Right. So it was a natural fit. Yeah. So I suppose that the, the, the very nature of the, the chair of this particular organization that you're with or this chair in workplace theology and business ethics. So they think that that's an important combination, the ethics in business? Absolutely. So a lot of what I do is teach. I teach seminarians about things like the importance of integrating their faith and economics mm -hmm. and work, and uh, that includes business ethics. And I also uh, teach business people about business ethics. You know, I taught at Said Business School uh, briefly uh, in Oxford, and for many years, business schools didn't teach ethics at all. They taught compliance, which is a very different thing. <laughs> it is very different, yeah. And so after the crash of 2008, they started getting serious about uh, ethics. And so people who were theologians, and it just so happens if you sat in the corner office, as I did, and you understood international business, that was interesting to them. Yeah. So this whole notion of teaching business ethics instead of just compliance is really expanding far beyond theological seminaries. It's in the business schools as well. Mm, mm, yeah. Now, Ken, today's big question is about capitalism. Has capitalism failed? But can you explain to us exactly what capitalism is? For capitalism, it's, it's different from commerce and trading, isn't it? So what exactly is capitalism? You know, that is such a good question because people really misunderstand capitalism. Yeah. One of the first things I say in the book is that Capitalism is a subject, not an object. Right. We love to anthropomorphize things right, yeah. and give them human traits. Well, capitalism has no will of its own, no hypostasis, no agency. It's just the term we use to describe this phenomenon mm -hmm. of lightly regulated, highly monetized free markets. Yeah. And so really, capitalism is just the cumulative effect of countless individual and corporate choices. Yeah. And the reason why it's important for us to understand that it needs to be redeemed is because it is a subject and not an object, which means it has no moral compass mm -hmm. to guide it. Yeah. And every economic decision is actually a moral choice. Yeah. So we need to 
converge these concepts of ethics and morality with business and economics if we want a system that is virtuous and works for the common good. Right, yeah. So in terms of capitalism, there is that, that notion of freedom, the freed market, etc., is that what defines capitalism as opposed to other economic systems no I mean the you know markets have always existed markets yeah. are just places of exchange yeah uh, and they've always existed you can't talk about capitalism really until the uh, industrial revolution yeah when you had this convergence of um, available capital available money you had uh, for the first time fractional banking which put liquidity in the hands of entrepreneurs. So what's, had, what's fractional banking? Fractional banking means that banks actually lend out more money than they have in reserve right, okay. in order to keep the money in circulation to, uh, to finance new enterprises. And that's how you get growth. You get economic growth that way. Before you had that, you couldn't have anything close to what we call capitalism. So that combination of fractional banking with the increase in technology, because technology ultimately is what creates wealth, uh, that and a lightly regulated system is what created capitalism. In fact, when Adam Smith wrote famously The Wealth of Nations, uh, he was observing this new phenomenon, and he was trying to ensure that the British, who were at the vanguard of this, didn't go back to a mercantilist system, which was a more government-controlled system as opposed to a free market system. Right, okay. So, because people traded um, for centuries, but then it wasn't until, what was you say about the 17th, 18th century, when right. it became, it morphed into this thing that we called capitalism. Um, so, is that where capitalism came from? Well, not the word. Uh, we owe that word to Karl Marx. Right, okay. uh, very <laughs> often, our critics uh, give us our, our definitions. As, right. So, it was really uh, Marx who, who called it capitalism because he recognized the fact that without that fractional banking system, without the free flow of capital, you couldn't do what capitalism does. Right, yeah. Now, some authors like Rodney Stark claim that Christianity and the Christian worldview led to capitalism. So how true is that? No, I wouldn't say that that is uh, particularly true. It didn't necessarily lead to capitalism. But it did influence and did inform what in the book I call modern capitalism, which was the next generation of capitalism after that which was observed by Adam Smith, which Max Weber observes. Right. And that was built on the Protestant work ethic. Because well, he wrote a book, didn't he, Max Weber? That's right. A, a very well, famous book on the, the Protestant work ethic. So, so how, how does that fit into the, the, the story? Well, it's an interesting observation on his part. He looked at... Um, capitalist nations all over the world, free market, capitalist, democratic countries. And he said, for some reason in America, they're doing better at it. There's something about it that's working uniquely in America. And he came to the conclusion that it was a social reason, not an economic reason. And that's because uh, America was largely reformed theologically. It had this neo-puritanical ethic that was uh, a remnant from its earliest days. And it meant that they didn't view life in compartments. So they, they had a well-ordered life, what he called a this-worldly asceticism, right. as opposed to a compartmentalization of life. And they viewed economic activity as part of their religious experience, part of their worship, as it were. Yeah. Now, ironically, um, as part of that neo-Puritan ethic, they also had an aversion to uh, wealth being spent on one's self. Okay. <laughs> so they're here they were creating tremendous amounts of wealth because 
They were putting it to good use. Uh, they, were, they were prudent. They were frugal. They understood thrift. They understood entrepreneurship. Uh, they worked very hard. Uh, and they were good stewards of the profits they made. But they had an aversion to self-indulgence. Right. So what did they do with the money? They reinvested it and created some of the philanthropic organizations that still exist today. So in that regard, it was a very Christian-influenced system. Right, okay. So there were some Christian connections perhaps oh, to the rise of, so. yeah, to the rise of so. capitalism. Yeah. yeah, But Christianity isn't necessarily connected to capitalism though, is it? No, you could have capitalism without Christianity. We have capitalism in a lot of places where we don't have Christianity. <laughs> yeah. But for capitalism to work well and for it to work for the common good and not just the good of a few, you have to have a moral basis. Yeah. So the question becomes, what moral basis when we don't have religious hegemony anywhere? So what, why do you say that? Why does capitalism need moral basis? Well, because of what we observed with the global financial crisis as an example. If you have this very efficient system for creating wealth, yeah. but the only moral impetus is to make as much money as possible, Yeah then what happens is you see ethical egoism on a corporate scale. Yeah. And that produces conduct that is not very becoming. And it leads to things like the global financial crisis. So how so? Do you want to expand on that? What? Sure. So in the case of, of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, you had a situation where a single investment bank was continuing to trade in... Uh, particular products, financial products, known as collateralized debt obligations, CDOs. That sounds complicated. It's not that complicated. Basically, they were funds that were built on the accumulation of debt instruments. Right. So they would buy mortgages from companies that gave mortgages. Mm -hmm. They would bundle those mortgages, the weak ones along with the strong ones, and then sell that bundled group of mortgages off as a separate vehicle. Yeah. And the the cash flow generated from those mortgages in the portfolio is what generated the return on investment for the CDOs. Yeah. Here's the problem. The problem is that once the market found out that there was someone who would buy their debt, the lenders started giving mortgages to people who weren't qualified. Right. So you had what were called ninja mortgages. Right. Someone with no income, no job, and no assets. Someone who clearly shouldn't have a mortgage. It doesn't sound like a, a particularly strong risk. Right. But the, the people who were putting these CDOs together, they said, well, you know what? A few bad apples won't spoil the bunch. Mm -hmm. So the good mortgages in the basket will mitigate the risk of the bad ones. And actually, the reverse happened. What happened was the bad mortgages contaminated the good ones. And when defaults started to happen on a massive scale, when people started to default on a grand scale, uh, that's when Lehman Brothers got into trouble. Yeah. And so Lehman Brothers was using all kinds of accounting tricks yeah. to convince the market that they weren't in trouble when they were. But the point is, they didn't do anything illegal. Right. But what they did was deceptive. And by not having a moral compass, by doing that which was within the law but still grossly immoral, yeah. they brought everybody down with them. And that's the key. There are people who believe regulation and legislation can fix capitalism. It can't. Yeah. We defer to those things when ethics fail. Mm. Only ethics and virtue can fix it. So this is the difference between compliance 
and ethics. You got it. You've got it. That's <laughs> yeah. the difference. Yeah. So, uh, well, how does the example of the, the GFC and Lehman Brothers, etc., particularly show the failure of capitalism? Well, for one reason, because of the contagion effect. It shows that we're all interconnected. And if, if one bank of that magnitude fails, the global economy feels it. $13 trillion was wiped off the face of the global bourses. I mean, that's a huge loss. Mm. We had double-digit unemployment. I mean, I could go on and on. And, uh, and, and so it, it just shows you that if, if, you, if you don't have people making decisions, because remember I said every economic decision is a moral choice. Yeah. If you don't have people who are making decisions on such a grand scale who have a moral compass – then they're going to make selfish choices which could have detrimental effects on everyone else. Mm. And it's this notion that economics, capitalism or any other form of economics, must exist as much for the common good as for those who seek to better themselves, mm. that matters. So would this also be connected to some of the other challenges or the way that uh, capitalism perhaps has failed others? So if there's a uh, talk about rising economic inequality. There's many millions of people admired in poverty. There's exploitation, environmental degradation, etc. So are these all connected? They are all connected. Absolutely. So, you know, if you talk about things like uh, inequality, a certain degree of inequality is natural in the system, and, and there's nothing wrong with that morally in and of itself. Some people work harder. Some people are smarter. Some people are luckier. Some people take risks. Some don't, etc. But what we have is what I call hyper-inequality. And so, again, if, if there were the eight richest people in the world in this room, they would have the equivalent wealth of three and a half billion other inhabitants of this planet. Mm. And there's something fundamentally immoral about that. So that's hyper... Hyper inequality. inequality. And that, but that's, isn't that the, sort of the product of capitalism? No, it's the product of what I call postmodern capitalism. Yeah. And postmodern capitalism is capitalism that is devoid of a moral compass and resistant, if not impervious, to ethical constraint. Mm. And what I mean by that is if you believe that there is a wall of separation between worldview, ethics, religious belief, whatever it might be, and economic progress you are going to get the kind of economic system we have, which serves only itself. And the longer it is not tempered by ethical constraint, the higher the risk that we have another big crash. Right, I see. So you've described that there's a sort of a moral vacuum then at the heart of modern or postmodern capitalism. That, that's that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, there is a moral vacuum. So why is that? Is it because of this... We've, lost connection to deeper values, etc.? Yes, that's part of it. So think about it. If, if capitalism is, as I said, this accumulation uh, or the accumulated effect of uh, individual and corporate moral choices, the capitalism we have is the capitalism we've chosen, mm. right? So it's going to reflect the morality or lack thereof of our culture. Mm. So we need to change the narrative. For 40 years in business schools all over the world, they taught the Friedman Doctrine of the only moral responsibility of a corporate executive is to make as much money as possible within the constraints of law and custom. That's compliance. That's right. <laughs> exactly. And, and we have seen how that fails. So what I'm saying is actually we should go back to what Adam Smith talked about. And he presumed in his writings that, in fact, we did have virtue in the system. And people forget that before Adam Smith wrote uh, Wealth of Nations, he wrote a book called Moral Sentiments, 
where he described the unique phenomenon of human beings, homo sapiens, having an endemic need to look after the service of others, the care of others, the well-being of others. Not that we don't also look after ourselves. We do. Mm. Self-love is not a sin. The double love command that we profess in Christianity presumes we love ourselves. Otherwise, we couldn't love our neighbors Mm. as we love ourselves. Mm. But what has happened is it has become perverted, and instead of self-interest or self-love, it's become selfishness, Mm. which means I looked after my interests at the expense of the other. And that's where we get into trouble. So is Adam Smith then influenced by his Christian worldview at the time? Yes, so Adam Smith um, was a theist by by all accounts. His contemporaries believed him to be so. Uh, he studied at Glasgow University under a very, very well-known Christian theist and philosopher of religion. And uh, even though some of his contemporaries uh, became deists, if you will, or even atheists like like uh, uh, David Hume, uh, he himself retained his his basic Christian beliefs. And he simply believed that you couldn't believe in a deity if you didn't believe that part of what it meant to be human was to emulate that deity. Mm. And part of emulating the deity means to act with love, Mm. concern for the other. Uh, And so he presumed in all of his work on Wealth of Nations that this basic understanding of, of human capability to love or to care or to be virtuous was already there. Mm. It just had to be tapped. Right. So in many ways, his economics was connected to his belief in something bigger. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. Now, speaking of something bigger, in the Bible, Jesus is a, is a character who connects us with something bigger, and he speaks a lot about money. So does that then make him a capitalist? No, uh, but he's also not a socialist. <laughs> right. What, what would Jesus be then? Sure. Well, first of all, let me just say uh, for your listeners the Bible has more to say about faith and work and economics than heaven, hell, and sexual ethics combined. Right. But we are created to flourish. And of all the systems out there, I think capitalism has been the most successful in creating wealth, taking people out of poverty, allowing people to flourish. But Jesus wouldn't have recognized either capitalism or socialism. Um, What he was concerned about was where people's hearts were. Well, he says that in one of the Gospel of Matthew, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have. uh, He encourages people not to store treasures on earth, but to store treasure in heaven. And he says exactly as you say in chapter 6, verse 21 of Matthew, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So is Jesus here encouraging or discouraging capitalism? Neither. As I said, he he would not recognize capitalism, but he would very much insist that any economic system be virtuous, reflect kingdom values. Mm. So when he takes the coin uh, and he's asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, look, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but unto the Lord that which is the Lord's. I think he would have a similar response to capitalism. Look, if that's the system you use to transact with each other in order to help human beings flourish, great. But do it in a way that reflects God's values. Mm. Do it in a way that will help the coming good, not just yourself. So you're saying, therefore, that the Bible or or the Christian message actually has something to offer to redeem capitalism? Absolutely. And and one of the things that I really enjoyed in writing this book is is that I make the claim that even the so-called theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, Mm. are just as important as the cardinal virtues, 
and just as universal. Well, there's virtues. I mean, this is these come from the Bible. Paul, the apostle Paul, highlights them in one Corinthians thirteen thirteen, where he says, "And now these three remain: faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love." So, is it naive, therefore, to try to put love at the heart of capitalism? Not only is it not naive, it's absolutely necessary. And it's because we've lost that that we really have the biggest problem. And when people ask me if I'm naive, I tell them this. You misunderstand what love is. We have this mawkish definition of love in our culture, this kind of romantic definition of love. Yeah. But the biblical definition of love is given to us not in a word but in a symbol. And that's the cross. Yeah. When he who had everything emptied himself for those who have nothing. That should be the model we're looking at. So that we look at our economics and we say, what are we doing not just to feather our own nests, but to help the other? Mm. That is love. And if we can bring love back into economics, and I think we must, mm. then we can redeem it. If we don't, we have no chance. Mm. So do you think that capitalism could be redeemed by a non-Christian philosophy or, that, or one that doesn't necessarily require connection to transcendent values? I think it could, um, but I think the lack of transcendent values becomes problematic when the pressure's on. Yeah. Uh, because it becomes, unpack, unpack that. Well, it becomes uh, basically an authority issue. And without a transcendent belief, without an understanding of some moral order to the universe, it becomes incredibly subjective. So I think we are much safer with an objective understanding of morality as our base. But is it possible to do without it? Yes. Just a lot harder, and I think a lot less efficient. Right, and perhaps if the well, if there's the creator, if there is a creator of the universe, and he's made these values that he desires, then it, perhaps it could lead to our flourishing. Oh, absolutely! And you know, eighty-seven percent of the people on the planet believe in God, believe mm. in a transcendent yeah. uh, realm, uh, and, and that's because. As Augustine said, we were created that way. Right? Mm. There's a there's a, a God shaped lacuna in all of our hearts, <laughs> um, and it is something that is incredibly intuitive. Uh, I talk a little bit about it in the book. I talk about uh, the Imago Dei mm. uh, and the Sensus Divinitatis. Latin terms, obviously, one means image of God, one means a sense of the divine. Even non-believers possess the Imago Dei, and the Sensus Divinitatis, whether they want it or not or like it or not, they possess it. Mm. And I have found, especially in my years as a chaplain, that when things get rough, the sense of the divine comes to the fore. Mm. And people start asking those hard questions. Frankly, that's why my phone started to ring after the crash. because That, that really happened to you? The oh, people, yeah. people were oh, s- struggling? Oh, yeah. And... and it was interesting because there are a lot of philosophers, a lot of theologians, but there weren't that many who had been in the corner office. Mm. So I understood exactly what the economic pressures were, and I was the least surprised guy in the room when the global financial crisis happened. But it Was it, this because you identified the moral vacuum? Yes, I had lived it. Yes. I had seen it, right? As I say to, to some people, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of global capitalism. Yeah. There's a lot of good. And there's a lot of bad and a lot of ugly. Uh, and, and my job now is as a poacher-turned-gamekeeper poacher <laughs> uh, to say we can do better than my generation did. Yeah. So I was not surprised. I got out right before the crash, and I wasn't surprised when it happened. But I counseled, you know, I counseled one fellow who lost everything in the Enron crisis. Yeah. Uh, so how did you counsel him? What did you, what did you share? Well, you know, I, I had to share with him the fact that his value as a human being 
really had nothing to do with his economic value. It had to do with how God saw him. Uh, and he needed to understand that he was precious and, and without any price tag. Uh, in fact, to the point where God actually gave his own son for him. Mm. You start thinking of your value as a human being uh, in terms of your worth to God as opposed to your worth in dollars, and, and you start seeing much more clearly. Mm. Now, Jesus also in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 16, when weighing up the cost of whether or not to follow him, he says in Matthew 16, 26, he says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Now, Jesus is speaking here about the, the cost of discipleship, but in what ways does this speak to the spirit of capitalism? That quote is the very first line of the book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, before even the prose, it's, it's, the, it's in the very first page of the first chapter of the book because actually that's what this is all about. So we spend an awful lot of our time in the wealth creation business. It would be very easy for us to become so distracted by that that we do lose our souls or we make economic choices that hurt other people and we do it anyway. Uh, it doesn't take much to sell one's soul, to lose one's soul. Um, one of the reasons why I left the corporate world is because I was asked to do something that I described to my wife as soul-destroying. Mm. Uh, can, can you expand on that? Sure. So I was asked to do a restructuring of a business and lay off a lot of people uh, at a time when the business was doing very well. And I was part of a very large multinational corporation. And we're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of euros in sales, etc., so I had to lay off a lot of people, and I couldn't understand why, because the business was doing so well. Well, it turned out that um, one of the people on the main board um, had stock options coming, and he wanted to tell the analysts at the next stock analyst call that we were making these cost cuts so that we could get a buy recommendation, so that when he sold his shares, he would pocket the difference. It was just pure greed on yeah. his part. It wasn't right for the business. It was, it was just pure greed. Now, when you're in a, a corporate environment, you're, you're trained to, to be a good soldier and do what you're told to do. And uh, I was responsible for a huge, profitable business. Do you just throw your rattle out of the pram? Do you? I mean, what do you do? Mm. And, and so I found myself in the very unenviable position of carrying out my orders but being very uneasy about it. Mm. And because it was soul-destroying, it began the process of me sitting here in front of you. So, Ken, has capitalism failed? In some ways. I think capitalism has been very successful in many ways. You know, we talk about the good. If you think about all of the people in the last 15 years, a billion people taken out of poverty is quite remarkable. If you think about access to health care, water, education, the arts, music, I could go on and on. Um, almost always because of capitalism or this thing we call capitalism, this economic activity. So on the one hand, it has succeeded wonderfully, but it also has failed spectacularly uh, in what it has become. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, has capitalism failed? From Matthew 16, 26. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Dr. Ken Barnes. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Hi everyone, Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Thanks for listening to the show and I hope you are coping okay amidst the challenges of coronavirus wherever you are in the world. Now the lockdown has impacted Bigger Questions as we've had to cancel a number of planned live shows and postpone a number more. Number more. We still have plenty of great shows ready for you in the coming weeks and I've invested in some remote podcasting software which we're going to use next week. So please keep tuning in and sharing with those who you know are interested in the bigger questions of life. Now the lockdown has helped us think of ways of getting better connected with you and our listening audience and others who may be keen on asking the bigger questions. So this is a reminder that on 9pm on Monday nights we're going to be sharing the latest Bigger Questions show as a Facebook premiere on the Bigger Questions Facebook page. And this will mean if you miss out on the broadcast on radio or haven't listened to the podcast, it gives another opportunity to engage with the big questions of the show. So like the Facebook page if you haven't already, and why not set up a watch party? Invite others to watch with you. Comment and ask your questions. I'll be watching the show live on Facebook and responding to any questions or comments. So if you've enjoyed this show, head over to the Facebook page and invite others to watch with you at 9pm on Monday night. And let's get more people exploring the big questions of life. Now, finally, if you do want to invest in bigger thinking, and maybe you could support us on Patreon. Now, I realize that a lot of people are doing it tough at the moment, but if you're able for as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help create better dialogue around the bigger questions of life. So go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions, and we're very grateful for all those patrons who already give to support the work of Bigger Questions. Anyway, I hope you're going okay amidst these troubling times. Thanks for listening, and remember to keep asking the bigger questions.